Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Today, our guest is Dr. George Fraser. He's a Cleveland-based author, entrepreneur, and speaker focusing on building wealth and improving diversity and inclusion. In 2011, Dr. Fraser was inducted into the Minority Business Hall of Fame and Museum. He's been awarded over 350 awards and citations from around the world to include three honorary doctorates, a chaplaincy, and an ambassadorship. He's put on the Popular Power Networking Conference for the past 15 years. Selected by Ford's magazine in 2015 as one of the top five conferences not to be missed by entrepreneurs. George, welcome to Reimagining Black Relations podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for your work, Francesca. And um, I'm happy to serve in any way that I can. Thank you. Do you mind introducing yourself formally and perhaps include any social interests you feel comfortable sharing? My beginnings are very humble. I may not look like it, but I'm 75 and born in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, New York, to a family of 11 children, eight boys and three girls. My father came to this country uh, in the early 1900s from Guyana. He married a fair-skinned sister, Ida Mae Baldwin, from Lumpkin, Georgia, and 11 children. But when I turned two, my mother became mentally ill, was institutionalized for the rest of her life. My father was a New York City cab driver. He could not uh, take care of 11 children. So at two, I was orphaned uh, with uh, two other siblings. Uh, there were three of us orphaned uh, together. I uh, stayed in an orphanage uh, from two to five and then spent uh, the balance of my uh, young life in toxic foster care uh, until I aged out at 18. Uh, no one thought I was college material. Somehow or another, I ended up with P three PhDs, but no one thought I was college material. So I was sent to a vocational high school where I got a diploma in woodworking and carpentry. I couldn't get a job in carpentry in New York City because the Italians controlled the union. So my first real job out of high school was mopping floors on the midnight shift at LaGuardia Airport. Uh, and I'm very proud of that, that work. If you go to LaGuardia Airport today, go down into the maintenance department, there's a, a big plaque on the wall. I'm on that plaque. I was the best floor mopper in the history of LaGuardia Airport. So what's the point, Dr. Fraser? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. That's the most important thing. Chart a good and righteous course and stay that course, and then all that is due you will come to you. Uh, so I am self-taught. I do not have an earned degree. All of my degrees are for my body of work. Uh, to include being presented the Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award by Barack Hussein Obama in 2016. So I am a race man. And a race man is someone that has committed their time, talent, and treasure to the investment and upliftment of their own people first. You can be a race woman too. So I have been serving black people 
Yes, I am black for 40 years. I am a student of people of African descent. I've studied and read. I read 100 books a year, half of 50 years. Uh, behind me, I'm in my office. There's 1,000 books. There are 15,000 in my home. I love to read. I believe that intellectual curiosity is key to critical thinking. We cannot be average. Black people cannot, only white people can be mediocre and average. Black people cannot be mediocre and average in America. How do we know this to be profoundly true? Donald Trump versus Barack Hussein Obama. Only a white man could rise to leader of the free world with the level of ignorance that he's displayed for the last three and a half years. That's mediocrity personified. So we could never do that. If Barack Hussein Obama had said or done one one thousandths of what Donald Trump had done or said, he wouldn't have been elected dog catcher. So I believe that excellence has to be our base and exceptionalism is our goal. I have invested my life in making sure that I model that and that I provide the tools for our people to, in fact, achieve that. Whether it is our WINS Wealth Building Centers and Curriculum that teaches financial education in the Black church, whether it's the Power Networking Conference that focuses solely on business and money uh, and wellness, psychological wellness, because we are out of our natural minds as black people. We have been driven crazy by white people. Uh, 400 years of the most egregious form of slavery invented in humankind. So we must work on our minds and our bodies because it's connected. Uh, Dr. Fraser, you've said so many things, and I'm wondering where I should start from or what the follow-up question even needs to be. Um, let me ask you, you've said mediocrity is not acceptable for Blacks. Can you elaborate on that, please? Sure. Because the standards have always been different for us, in every stage of our 400 years of oppression, we were thought of as less than, as inferior the falsehood of Europeans coming to Africa, pulling us out of trees, eating bananas, was a lie. We are a brilliant people. Brilliant. We are God's first people. That's not hype and that's not BS. That's a biological fact. We are God's first people. Every human being on earth has African DNA. Not only did Europeans not civilize us. We actually civilized them. But they stole our history. They turned it inside out and for centuries tried to convince the world that we were born to be enslaved, that it was biblically written. Now, Either we can now, centuries later, provide them proof of that by being less than who we really are. We are the children of the slaves that would not die. We, are the, we have the genetic encoding of the great kings and queens of Africa that we were building pyramids and solving complex engineering problems when other cultures, Europeans, were living in caves, eating each other. And in spite of the fact that the world, and if not America, kept its foot on our throat for at least 350 years. We overcame that and rose like the phoenix. We're an awesome and powerful people. The time now is to demonstrate that 
to this world, to America, minimally. Africans in America are the smartest Africans per capita on earth. So God works in mysterious ways. And we must now rise intellectually, morally, and spiritually, as we all always have as moral we are i think the the most morally grounded and spiritually rooted people in this country quite frankly i say often times when i speak around the country that in spite of the fact that america kept its foot on our throat for 350 years we overcame that and we rose like the phoenix therefore if everything happens for a reason and serves us in some special way and you will never understand that reason looking forward and you will only understand it looking backwards Maybe we were not brought here. Maybe we were sent here. Do you believe, how could you believe, that a people who could morally, spiritually, and biblically justify the kidnapping, raping, and pillaging of another two people, native already, natives already in America and Africans brought to America, have any moral or spiritual grounding? And perhaps had God not sent Africans here, America might have self-destructed by now. So, we must rise and we must demonstrate to this world that we are who we really are, the mothers and fathers of humankind, and we civilize them. They did not civilize us. That must be modeled and rekindled and reported on and seen by our children. So we, again, have a moral and spiritual responsibility to have excellence as our base, not mediocrity or averageness, excellence, because we have the DNA for that. We have the capability of that. We cannot be less than that. But that work must be done by black people, that no one is going to save black people but black people. White people will not be saving black people. I'm sorry. It's been 400 years and we ain't saved. White people are not even thinking about black people. You know who white people are thinking about? They're thinking about white people. They're thinking about their husbands, their wives, their children, their neighborhoods, their schools, their businesses in your pockets. They ain't thinking about you. They're thinking about them. They're doing everything they need to do to succeed in spite of the egregious evilness of it over the last 400 years. It's still what they need to do to succeed. The problem is we're not doing everything we need to do to succeed. And shame on us. So we must teach our people we must stop being spectators to success. Being angry is not a business plan. We need a strategy, not just emotions. We must effectively utilize relationship capital building networks and leveraging more effectively our collective resources and intellectual capital. We must be focused on personal growth and development, lifelong learning, and constant never-ending improvement. Socrates says it so beautifully. He says the only good is knowledge and the only evil is ignorance. He is right. There's a very famous biblical passage that every black person in America, if not throughout the Pan-African diaspora, has heard and has been quoted to them. 
and that is, my people perish for the lack of knowledge. We all know that passage, Hosea 4, verses 6. What people don't know is the rest of that passage and what the Creator said in the rest of that passage. And what did he say in the rest of that passage, Dr. Fraser? My people perish for the lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Thou shalt be no priest to me. So this is God saying, if you reject knowledge, if we reject knowledge, he will reject us. Oh, my goodness. Um, everything that comes out of your mouth is golden, and I'm trying to write as fast as I can. Um, Dr. Fraser, I understand what you've said. Black people must save themselves. They should not assume that white people will lead the effort. But because we are in this world together or on earth together and our existence is almost symbiotic, we depend on each other, as such, we need to coexist. And I want to believe there is a role for everyone to play. What is the role of white people? You've spoken at length to black people and we're still going to go back there. But I want to hear from your wealth of knowledge what the role of white people needs to be among um, equitable measure of all humanity. You did say that perhaps, and that is a hypothetical one, perhaps blacks were sent to the United States to save the United States and that we don't know what would have happened if blacks had not come. I don't want to even advance that thought, but let's just assume that we are all coexisting for the mutual benefit of each other, not for one to oppress and the other to remain oppressed. Do you mind elaborating on the role of our white brothers and sisters? They have a powerful role, but it is not to save us. It is to mitigate and to take down the barriers that limit our ascendance. It is to put back up a ladder that we can climb on. It is to understand that they are privileged. And I believe that the moment has come. There's, there will be this, this era will be called before George Floyd and after George Floyd. I think there has been a realization by good people now that they are privileged. We're never going to get rid of white privilege. It'll be 100 to 200 years before we get rid of white privilege. There's only one way that ultimately we will eliminate all racism or all white supremacy. There's only one way that this is going to happen, and it's inevitable and it's obvious. It should be obvious to anybody. And I'm going to say this, and I want to say this and still be loved, but ultimately we're going to screw our way out of it. In 100 and 200 years, you won't know who's who. With the mixing of people and the mixing of marriages and the commingling that's producing children that have all kinds of flavors and all, right? You won't know who's black. If you are fortunate enough to come back here two centuries from now, that's when it will be mitigated. But until there is a now a clear divide between black and white, generally speaking, even that's getting a little blurry. I'm black. People look at me and they think I'm white, right? But I'm black. Until that time, those who have white privilege should use the power of that privilege to mitigate white privilege. 
I think it must be used as a force against itself. It is sort of the Asian concepts of martial arts, where the force of movement towards a person is used against that person. The same thing with white privilege. They, people with white privilege who are of right mind, who want to do something, they can speak up and speak out now. And when they see something going wrong in cases where privilege is being exercised, they can speak up about that. They can speak out about that. White people also are inherently racist. I don't mean that in a mean or negative way. And therefore, it is also impossible for black people to be racist. And you know we can't be racist because we have no power. So it doesn't matter what we think of you or what we say about you. We have no power to do anything about it. But white people do. That's why they're inherently racist. They have all the power. So if they don't want us to live in their neighborhoods, Francesca, they can create laws to prevent us from living in their neighborhoods. That's power. We can't do anything about that. That is the deeper definition of racism. Whether I, Now, we have prejudices. I have prejudices. You have prejudices. Right? We all have prejudices. But black people can't be racist because we have no power. We cannot affect laws. We can't, we can't put something into place to prevent you from having any damn thing, right? We know that uh, uh, 50, 100 years ago, whites simply said, we don't want you drinking at our water fountain. Therefore, we're going to make a law so that you can't drink at that water fountain. Something as simple as drinking water. You're going to drink at that water fountain. We have no power to do that, ever. So they, all of them are inherently racist because they have the power as a group to make laws to carry out whatever they want to carry out. We cannot do that. So. Wow. Okay. So my, my, my heart is beating so fast and I'm literally serious because it's so deep. But let me just ask, white people, they have roles to play. But you said they need to get rid of white privilege. Well, they, I said they need to mitigate it. They need to reduce it. it, understand it, understand that they are in a privileged position. They have denied that for hundreds of years. That just the, the mere fact of their skin color provides them advantages that we can't even conceive. So as human beings, myself included, what you say now is that I need to work against what benefits me. Um, white privilege is a benefit to white people. Many of them did not dictate or have influence over that privilege. They just acquired it based on the color of their skin. So now you're saying they need to work against that privilege. How comfortable would that be? Very, very uncomfortable. The wonderful question, Francesca. Very uncomfortable. Very hard. If it was easy, why would God need them? Why would God need you? It's very difficult. I'm not saying it's easy, right? Uh, 
who works against something that they automatically receive and are comfortable with and have had it for hundreds of years? Who, who does that? Right? So I'm not saying that it will ever go away. I don't think it will. Neither will racism. But it can be mitigated. It can be reduced. It could be understood. There could be compassion. There could be empathy. There could be even sympathy in some cases. Right? And that's what they need to work on. And it's hard. You're trying to change habits of for centuries. It's hard. But if they think that's hard, Francesca, let's see if they could wrap their mind around how hard it's been for you, your mother, your father, great, great. Right for twenty-five generations, so they think this is hard. Have someone with their leg on your neck for four hundred years. Let's see how hard that is. Yes, um, I hear you, sir. So you're saying the way to do this uh, because I was going to ask how it can be done. It's a very hard, almost insurmountable task, but but you answered. You said it can be dealt with using empathy, even sympathy, compassion, right? They they can start the process from being compassionate, not just a myopic view of immediate gratification for today or the economic benefit to the giver, but compassion based on the historical damage to the oppressed. This would not be easy. And you are reminding us that when compared to the sufferings and the fears and sorrows and pains of 400 plus years, this uh, challenge uh, to our white brothers and sisters, you're saying it's not comparable to what the black brothers and sisters have experienced. I think that's what you, you said, right? Yes, of course. Of course. Now, let's be realistic. And I've said this in public speeches. What I'm talking about will take at least 100 years, three to five more generations. In other words, Francesca, there are going to have to be a couple of generations that simply die. Right? They die of natural causes. One generation dies off. Another generation is born. So it's, it's, we're not talking about, we're not talking about a program. We're talking about a process. But the, the process begins with empathy, with understanding, with an aha moment. George Floyd was an aha moment. Like I've never seen in my 75 years. It was an aha moment. So this is a good time to start. We will not live to see the results. You will not live to see the results. Your children will not live to see the ultimate results, and neither will their children. But it must start somewhere. That's what I'm talking about. This requires patience, due diligence, vision, compassion, empathy, caring, sharing, humility, all the things we typically love about great people. Thank you again. Um, So I think I also heard you said, 
race may be a non-issue because we may all be mixed. It's going to be less of an issue. It, it, it may not completely go, but it will be less of an issue. No question about it. There'll be so much mixing, it'll be less of an issue. So in that case, for the sake of our posterity, white, black, or brown, this is the right thing to do for our future generations. That's right. That's right. It is the issue and has been, well, Du Bois said that race was the issue of the 20th century. It is also going to be the issue of the 21st century. Has things gotten better? Yeah. We can't deny that. Yes. They are better. We're not picking cotton. We're not working from sunup to sundown. We're not living in shacks. Our women are not being raped, and our children are not being separated from us. And we have a system of education, although inferior to them. So, yes. Things have improved. We cannot deny that. We have a Civil Rights Act, a Voting Rights Act, a Fair Housing Act. We've got laws, Jim Crow laws. And so for the most part, yes, things have improved. Are they where they need to be? No, not at all. Right? I, I don't know why anybody would be happy. I mean, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm happy I'm alive. I'm happy I'm in my right mind. I'm happy I'm breathing relatively clean air. I'm happy uh, that I'm able to send my children to the college of their choice. Yes, I'm, I'm happy about certain things, no question about that. But in total, am I happy as compared to where white people are and black people are? That's the wrong measurement when you look at the wealth gap. I'm not happy about the growing wealth gap between blacks and whites in America. We're at the bottom of every single economic statistic that matters in this country, and we've been here 400 years. No, I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy about the inferior urban education our inner city children get. No, I'm not happy. That's the, you know, that's at the base of helping to shape a human being is their education. No, I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy that those of us blacks who are poor have to live in substandard housing, be paid substandard wages, not even living wage. No, there are many things. We can go on and on about the things I'm not happy and, and, and black people are not happy about. That's what I'm fighting for. And I think there are more and more whites who get it, who understand it, who are putting a better foot forward are doing everything that they can, but they're not giving up their privilege. I am not naive. I am hopeful because I'm black and black people are full of hope. We have to be, but I'm also a realist. I, I have a sign on my wall right here, my, my five rules. I look at them every day and it says, face reality as it is, not as you wish it were. That's number one. Be candid with everyone. That's number two. Change before you have to. That's number three. If you don't have a competitive advantage, don't compete. That's number four. 
And the final one is control your own destiny or somebody else will. Oh, my. Okay. Mm. My, my. Those are the... Those are the Guiding principles, I can, mm-hmm. I hear that very clearly. You started by saying your background was humbled. Um, at age two, you were orphaned with two other siblings. Um, I'm bringing that up because I can only imagine what your experience must have been as an orphan from the age of two. I'm curious to know how you were formed and shaped to become who you are today. Um, please give us a two-minute synopsis of your forming years and its influence on the man today. Yeah. Well, you ask great questions. That's a deep question. There's a classic debate, nature versus nurture. Your DNA, what's inside of you, that is very complex. But we know that your DNA and what's inside of you is deeply impacted by how you're nurtured. So I was not nurtured in in the classic sense that most people would look at my life as very traumatic as a foster child. But obviously, I must have had good DNA because my sister tells me about this. My sister's the only one living. She's 76. She's the only one living who has been with me from zero to now. And I asked her all the time, what was I like as a little boy? She said, George, the way you are now is the way you were as a little boy. She says, I think about this all the time. It's the most amazing thing. She said, in spite of all the hell going on around us, all of the abuse from sexual abuse to physical abuse to verbal abuse, you were in a sense oblivious to it. And she said, I can't explain it. Well, let me just paint a little picture for you. When I reached 10 years old, I started my first business. It was a lemonade and Kool-Aid stand, extra sweet lemonade, So people would buy more than one cup, and then I would sell water at three cents a cup. But that's what I valued it at, but I gave it to people. I had a lot of good customers. That's my first business. I made a lot of money in that little business. My next business right after that was I started a house cleaning service for old people. Only you have to be over 65 or have some disability. And I charge you the market rates. And I had more business than I knew what to do with. So I had to, I, I had to hire my siblings so that they could do the work and I would go get the business. So it was a, a 60-40 split. Wow. I also started simultaneously a snow shoveling business and raking leaves. And then I started an automobile cleaning service. I would wash your car and wax it but it was for old people only who wanted to have a clean car, but just, you know, was basically too old to do it themselves, right? And that was sort of the story of my life. I was always very entrepreneurial and self-sufficient. And regardless of the drama and the trauma going on around me, I wasn't focused on that. I was focused 
on being self-sufficient because our foster parents, they were not good people. Um, so we had to do that ourselves. And that's what kept me focused. I was a C student, even in vocational high school. I just was not interested in school. I knew I had to get out of high school, but I wasn't interested in it. I was only interested in two things, which I aced. I was only interested in history and English. Those are the only two things that piqued my interest. And those are the two things I did very, very, very well. I learned the skill of carpentry, but I would not have been a good carpenter, right? I just did it to get out of school. When I aged out of foster care, I had older brothers who had aged out before me, and my father maintained a brownstone in Brooklyn, New York, so his children could come back once they aged out of foster care, which is a big problem in foster care. A lot of kids age out, but they have no place to go. We had a place to go. I went back. My older brothers were there. They were involved in heroin and cocaine. A couple of them were in jail. They were addicted. I only stayed around for about two or three years. I said to myself, I have to get out of here. I packed up what little I had, got on a Greyhound bus, went to Cleveland, Ohio, where I live today. I had an older sister who took me in. I made that decision independent of them. In a sense, I was listening to God. You know what it takes for a 21-year-old that has never been outside uh, of his own neighborhood, basically, in New York City? to pack up what he has and to leave his entire family. I did not want them to know where I was. And so I never reported back to my family for five years. They did not know where I was uh, until I got my life together. When I got my life together, I went back and I saved one of my brothers who was a, a heroin addict and I brought him back to Cleveland with me. So my story is one of DNA and one of incremental successes. Uh, I believe first things first, second things never. Do the first thing, do it with excellence, then do the second thing, and the second thing then becomes first. That If you do it with excellence, if you do it with exceptionalism, you will never have to worry about competition. You will never have to get in anybody's line. People will get in line for you. And I had proved that theory out throughout my entire young entrepreneurial career where everything I did, I did with excellence. I never had to advertise. I never had to promote. All the business I got, more than I and my family could handle, was all by word of mouth. What was the word of mouth? There's this young kid, they used to call me Georgie Boy, who rakes leaves, shovels snows. He's really good at it. So I never, I never had to look for a job in my entire life. People found me. Even my job at Procter & Gamble for nearly 13 years. My job as vice president of United Way, head of uh, communications for United Way. People found me. I never had to apply for a job. That's why excellence is so important. So what can we do to help white people do what they must do and need to do for us, we can be excellent at what we do. We can demonstrate that we can help ourselves. This is biblical, Francesca. White people can be icing on the cake and the cherry on top, but they can't be the cake. We are the cake. 
We have to bake it. And when people see that we can do that and we can do it with excellence and we can do it with commitment and we can do it with passion and energy and we can compete with anybody and we can, that's when the help piles on. Thank you, sir, for sharing that. I've heard that a different kind of education and mindset will be needed to move Black people to level. What is your thought about that? So it requires slowly but surely uh, introducing into our way of living, into our culture, into our mindset. Beyonce has just done a marvelous job with this in her new video, Black is King, where she went all over the Pan-African diaspora. Right. So introducing the concepts and ideas of our Africanness, of our greatness, um, and that's a slow but sure process. I believe that, that, that that's right. Uh, not only must we in the Americas must go through this process, which will take several generations to reintroduce ourselves to our own greatness and our own history, right? And uh, reintroduce a new curriculum to the uh, educational system that barely speaks about who we are and our accomplishments. It does not cover any of our ancient history, only 400 years of oppression, right? Which is really just a bump in the road, 3,500 years before Christ, we were building pyramids and solving complex engineering problems. If you go to the pyramids of Giza in Cairo, if you go into the Valley of the Kings in Egypt and you go into those tombs and you look on the walls and see what's painted on those walls, there are black people of every shade you can imagine. These were Africans. Egypt is not in the Middle East. It's in Africa, all right? It's in Africa. We are African, so we have to reintroduce this thought. In my generation, I grew up in a generation born 1945 where we were trying to be white. What I love about millennials is that they're unapologetically black, but we were trying to be white so that we could work, so we could get jobs, so we could make the white man happy. We were dressing like the white man. We were trying to sound like the white man. We were trying to look like the white man with everything, right? That's not. That's the beautiful thing about the, these, these younger generations. They are now unapologetically black, and that's a beautiful thing. So the same thing must go on in Africa. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in Ghana, but if you go into the... Ghanaian uh, uh, court system, you got black men wearing white powdered wigs. You know how stupid that looks? Our African brothers still have a colonized mind. So we have gone through a psychological holocaust, second to none in the history of humankind. So yes, we now must be deprogrammed. That will take several generations. We must talk about our ancient history and our modern history, not just the 400-year bump of 9,000 years of African history, civilization. We built the first great civilization. Make no mistake about that. Africans, not Europeans. So that story must be told, and guess who's going to have to tell it? We are. We must be in control of our own narrative. So we're seeing more and more of that today. That's a wonderful thing. And eventually over time, it will change. But as, let me say it again. This is a process. 
that is not a program. We didn't get this way overnight. We're not going to solve it overnight. Thank you again, Dr. Fraser. Do you mind speaking to our Black brothers and sisters on what the next steps need to be? I'm going to make it as simple as possible. I'm going to address each individual out here listening to us uh, today. And I'm going to give you just a, a few things that each of you can do right now that will change your life in one year, that will move you towards excellence, that will put you in the right frame of mind. Number one, remove negative people from your life, people who drain you of your time, your talent, your treasure, people who drive you insane, toxic people. Move, remove toxic people from your life. This is easy to say, very difficult to do. Why? Because most of these people are your family, right? That's why friends are critically important, because it's God's way of apologizing for your relatives. Introduce me to your five closest friends, and that will tell me who you are, as they know, and that, and as they go, so go you. If you're hanging out with five broke people, within a year, you're going to be the sixth broke person. What's the message on that one? Don't spend major time with minor people. People going nowhere want you to go nowhere with them. People doing nothing want you to do nothing with them. If you want to change your life, change your relationships. You will not get wherever you're going on your own by yourself in a vacuum. You will do it with and through other people. Now it comes down to who are those people. But most importantly, remove the negative ones. The second thing, whatever stage you are in life, whatever goal you may have in whatever passage you are in life, commit yourself to whatever that goal is. Commit yourself 200% to that goal, whatever it may be. You heard what I said when I was a kid. I committed myself to being the best car washer in the neighborhood. I committed myself to doing the best job at raking leaves, the best job to suffering snow, the best job at cleaning houses. There was one other job I didn't tell you about. I, had a, I started a babysitting service only for uh, males, right? So it would be... Now, this is back in the 50s now. Only young girls were doing babysitting, right? Uh, I was babysitting. It was, uh, I was hiring myself out as a babysitter at night for people who had male children. And they wanted a male to mentor uh, or to babysit another male, right? Whatever goal you have at that stage and passage in your life, commit 200% to that goal and to do it with excellence. If you're going to do it, do it well or don't do it at all. Excellence. How you do anything is how you do everything. Number three, stay humble. Humility is powerful. Don't be a narcissist. We have the worst narcissist in the world running this country. Give credit away. You know what happens when you give all the credit away? It comes back to you. Number four, learn from your mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. Obstacles is part of it. You learn far more from failure than you do from success. Obstacles, let me say it differently. Well, let me say how Marcus Aurelius says it the best. I love Marcus Aurelius. His favorite quote outside of the Bible is Marcus Aurelius, one of the five great Caesars. Marcus Aurelius said, the impediment to action advances the action. 
What stands in your way becomes the way. Deep. Now, another way to say it is the obstacle is the way. Where there is no obstacle, there is no way. Right? What's the first thing God does when he gives you an assignment that he feels that you're ready for? He puts an obstacle in your way so that uh, your job is to learn to overcome it or to move or find a way over, around it, through, or under it. When you do, you get an atta girl or an atta boy. And then you're given a new assignment by God at a slightly higher level. And then you know what the next thing he does? He puts an obstacle in your way. Your job is to find a way over, around, through, and under those obstacles and learn the lessons. The great James Baldwin said it beautifully. We are born, we suffer, and we die. Right? We are born, we suffer, and then we die. What did he mean by that? It is how we handle our obstacles. How we handle our suffering is life is what will determine our life. Number five, keep building relevant skills be committed to personal growth and development lifelong learning and constant never-ending improvement read the average american only reads one book a year if you read one book a month in five years you will have read 60 books the average american will have only read five you're going to be better prepared this is especially important for black people read i know we have an oral tradition but read and the final thing is constantly reinvent yourself. I'm not the same kid that cleaned cars back in the 50s. My ethics and standard and character is the same, but I have reinvented myself many times over many passages in my life. I looked out and looked at the opportunity. Where could I go? What can I do? Right? What do I need to learn? Right? How do I need to pivot? And I reinvented myself. I'm still reinventing myself at 75 years old. Constant, never-ending improvement. Those are the things that I would recommend that all the folks listening to this think about, implement, habitualize them, and you will change your life in one year. Oh, thank you, sir. I don't have words to express my gratitude for the wisdom you've given to me personally. And I think even to every listener, white, black, or brown, the message is for all. I'm sincerely grateful on behalf of this generation and the many to come that will benefit from what you've shared with us today. I thank you so much for your time and pouring your wealth of priceless wisdom into us. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate you. You did an awesome job. Stay the course. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing God's work. You're going to make a huge contribution to your kind. I promise you. Thank you, sir. I don't know about you. I have never personally met anyone like Dr. George Fraser. It felt like he was speaking to me personally, and it was piercing my soul. And I'm almost certain you'll feel the same way at your end as well. In his closing statements, he gave us a number of steps we all need, regardless of the color of our skin. So what are the critical points? Um, first, to white people, he wants you to mitigate and take down the barriers that limit black people. He wants you to put back the ladder or create the opportunities so blacks can climb up. 
He said, you need to understand you are very privileged and he's expressing the need for you to use that privilege to mitigate the issues faced by the black race. He wants you to speak up and speak out now against black oppression. He understands this is hard, but focusing on empathy, compassion, sympathy, humility, vision, and similar factors for your posterity will make it possible. And specifically for blacks, the work must be done by black people. Black must not rely on whites. They need to do the work themselves. So blacks need to do the work themselves. He wants you to be excellent in what you do. He said, if you practice exceptionalism in what you do, you will never have to worry about competition. Moreover, excellence needs to be your baseline to even start the process. He affirmed that Blacks need reorientation through education. Although many Blacks rely on oral tradition, he's challenging you to read at the minimum one book per month. There's so many things in there, but those were the few I was able to quickly grab um, so that we can uh, wrap up this wonderful session. And I want to encourage you to listen again. I plan to do the same myself. Um, Dr. George Fraser, thank you for your contribution to the history we are making. I'm so excited to be part of it. God bless you and your family. And to all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America. See you next time. Bye-bye.